available for use in church. Genesis uh, chapter 17, and we commence our reading at verse 1. This is now um, almost 25 years after the call of God and that covenant that he made with Abraham. And now the Lord adds a sign to that covenant and he extends that covenant uh, to Abraham's family also. And we're reading this by way of background uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, this morning. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring." Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. 
I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers. And I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael, and all those born in his household are bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day, and every male in Abraham's household including those born in his household, or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Then I want us to turn to Acts chapter 2. The context here is that now there are Jews in Jerusalem from all the nations of the earth. The apostles, the leaders of the church, are there and they receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter preaches a sermon uh, which is focused on the Christ that Abraham had believed uh, and then um, speaks to uh, those um, who are there about what they need uh, to do. Um, they, um, in Acts chapter 2, uh, they ask uh, men and brethren, what shall we do? Uh, that question is asked in verse 37. And it's very, very striking what Peter said in response. Because he spoke to them about themselves. He spoke to them about their household. And he spoke to them about the nations of the earth. And in a very real sense, this is Genesis 17, Genesis 12, coming to a further stage of fulfillment. So let's read these words together. Uh, chapter 2, verse 37. Uh, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, unto uh, or as the sign of the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all the nations, in other words, afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their members that day. Amen. Corinthians uh, chapter 7. First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 7. And we have come now to the section from verse 12 uh, through to verse uh, 16. We are going to be looking at this this morning and also this evening. So let's read the verses uh, together. We read from verse 10 where Paul addresses the married uh, who are believers um, and then uh, the, from verse 12 it is 
the married who are, where there's one party a believer and the other not a believer. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to divorce her husband, but even if she does divorce, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified uh, and uh, is sanctified in the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified in the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now if the believer, sorry, if the unbeliever divorces, let him divorce. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases or circumstances. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save or win your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will win your wife? Amen. In this uh, chapter, those of you who have been here uh, week after week will know that Paul is addressing five questions in relation to marriage. Questions that the Corinthians have raised with him. And these questions have arisen because of a pressure group within the Corinthian congregation. And their mantra, we believe, is the words spoken in verse 1b. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And as a result, some Christians are abstaining from sexual relations within their marriage. Paul deals with that in verses 2 to 7. And his command is, stop defrauding one another. Verse 5. In verses 8 and 9, Paul addresses the second question. Uh, um, And the question now is whether widowers and widows should marry. This pressure group, whom we're calling the ascetics or purists in Corinth, they are teaching, certainly not. Remain single. That is better. Paul's response is, while it is good remain even as I am verse 8 in other words outside a marriage the bereaved person who does not have the gift of singleness from this point on must marry rather than battle daily with unfulfilled and unabated sexual desire verse 9 in other words verse 7 each has his own gift from God and must act accordingly Last time we noted Paul's answer to the third question that we have in verses 10 and 11. And it is the issue of whether it is right for two Christians to divorce in pursuit of the kind of purity, spiritual and moral, that this ascetics group is claiming and promoting in the church. You see, they said to those who are married, Well, the only way you can be absolutely pure and absolutely sure you will not fall into sexual relations is if you divorce your husband 
or your wife and return to a single state? Paul's answer is a resounding no. Verse 10, now to the married I command, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to divorce her husband. Verse 11, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul, like Jesus, forbids the dissolution of Christian marriages. Uh, On this ground in particular, Paul is dealing with here. And so now in verses 12 to 16, Paul addresses the fourth question that they are most that they have raised in the letter which they have sent to him. What if a believer is in a mixed marriage where, and this is what we mean by mixed marriage, since their marriage as unbelievers, Christ has saved one party and not the other. That is the only accurate definition of a mixed marriage in scripture where uh, two unbelievers marry one becomes saved the other isn't so what are they to do should the believer divorce the unbelieving spouse again the ascetics group had their answer and they would say yes absolutely and they were likely to offer two reasons Uh, As far as I can understand the background here, one, as they've already said, the sexual relationship is defiling in itself. But then secondly, you, a believer, you are further defiled by your marriage to an unbeliever. Now let's look at what Paul says. We're going to look at it under two headings. Uh, One, this morning, and one this evening. Uh, I'm sorry that the, the chapter 7 is taking longer than I'd anticipated. But this is detailed uh, material. And it's um, uh, we need to get the teaching right. So that's the decision I made uh, on the basis of this. So this morning we have one point. And the point is based on verses 12 to 14. So we're thinking now about be transformed. Divorce within mixed marriages. And Paul's command is believers in mixed marriages, or his teaching is believers in mixed marriages are not to initiate divorce. They are not to set in motion divorce proceedings. Uh, They are not to start a divorce against the unbeliever. Now that's the summary of what we're going to see Let me show you how I reach that conclusion. Well, verse 12 begins, Now to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. Those words, now to the rest, indicate that Paul is addressing a different group. So he's no longer addressing two Christians in a marriage. Um, And... um, uh, He is dealing now uh, with a different um, group. The words, I, not the Lord, do not mean Paul is now giving his own view. They simply mean Christ did not address this issue during his earthly ministry. Christ did address 
the issue of divorce amongst the Jews, amongst those who were his covenant and supposedly uh, and uh, should have been a believing people. And he said to them, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And we saw last time that was the bedrock of Paul's teaching here in Corinth. But Christ did not say, did not go on to say in uh, Matthew or Mark what should happen uh, in this situation. To unbelievers, one becomes a believer uh, and uh, what they should do. So Paul is speaking now without any um, um, teaching from Christ in his earthly life. Paul, however, is speaking as the apostle of Christ. And so he is speaking with the authority of Christ. And what he says at this point is not a single whit less authoritative, authoritative than what he has said in the previous verses when he quoted Christ himself. Or when he was uh, building upon what Christ said himself. So having said that much so that we realize we are the same level. We have a level playing ground here. Um, let's look at verse 12. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she consents to dwell with him, let him not divorce her. And a wife who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to dwell with her, let uh, her not divorce him. Paul addresses first the husband whom he calls a brother married to an unbelieving woman. Then he addresses the wife, um, a believer who is married to an unbelieving man. The adjective unbelieving um, refers most often in Paul's letter to Gentiles without saving faith in Christ. And so if you're here this morning in church and you do not have saving faith in Christ, if you have not repented of your sin and if you have not put your trust in Christ as the only saviour, you are unbelieving. You're outside the kingdom of God. A general belief in God is not sufficient. You're unbelieving. And unless you repent of your sin and unless you believe personally in Christ as the one who died for your sin, then you will not go to heaven when you die. As an unbelieving person, you will go to hell. And so we urge you, if you're in that state this morning, to repent and to believe and to be saved through Christ, whether you're a child, a teenager, or an adult. So unbelieving means those without saving faith in Christ. And when Paul uses it, uh, because he's the apostle to the Gentiles and working amongst Gentiles, uh, it is used particularly of them. But it's also true of Jews who didn't have faith in Christ. Now, back to our text. And we want to see that Paul addresses each believer exactly the same way. He makes no distinction on the basis of gender. He doesn't uh, say, well, here's 
what the man should do, the believing man. Here's what the believing woman um, should do. No, they're to do the same thing. Um, and he doesn't make any distinction on the basis of culture, Greek, Roman, or Jewish. There isn't one rule for a believing man in a mixed marriage and a different rule for a believing woman in a mixed marriage. Verse 12, he must not divorce her. Verse 13, she must not divorce him. Literally, Paul says, and this is where the NIV is not as clear or as accurate because it uses the word must, but what Paul literally says is, let him not divorce her. Let her not divorce him. It's a command. It's a present uh, command, a present, a present tense. It's in the third person. It's the equivalent of Paul saying to them directly, do not divorce him. Do not divorce her. If he'd known who the particular person was, he could have put the name before it. Uh, Sothenes, do not divorce her. Um, um, uh, Mary, do not divorce him. Now, in verse 14, um, Paul states a reason. And James is putting up some things on screens for us here this morning, again, to help us uh, with this. He gives a reason as to why the believing party in a mixed marriage may not initiate divorce. Notice the word for. For. Um, if your mum says to you, Jenny, you cannot uh, go beyond a certain point in Copeland Drive, for there are a lot of cars that whiz across the road, fly down that road. That's the reason. She's giving the reason. So Paul's now giving a reason. And so what is the reason why the believer in a mixed marriage may not initiate divorce of the unbeliever? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified in the believing wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified in the believing husband. Paul emphasizes the word sanctified by putting it first in the sentence. Now Paul has already used this word in chapter 1, verse 30, and in chapter 6, verse 11. We've seen that. And there it's used to describe the salvation the Corinthians have in Christ. So we've got a, a question here. Is Paul suggesting then that the unbelieving party is saved by virtue of their marriage to the believer? Well, absolutely not. There's no question about that. Paul, throughout all his writings, continually sets before us, as does the rest of Scripture, Christ alone saves. Christ alone lived a righteous life without sin, Christ alone died on the cross for our sins. To be saved, we need to be given righteousness. And to be saved, we need our sin taken away. Marriage can't do that. 
Baptism can't do that. Communion can't do that. Church membership can't do that. Nothing saves the unbeliever but Christ. And if we're in any doubt that uh, that is Paul's position and that he's not suggesting that the unbeliever is saved in Christ, well then all we need to do is look at verse 16. Because in verse 16, Paul reminds the believing party that despite their marriage, despite the years that they might spend with the unbeliever, you do not know whether the unbelieving party in the marriage will ever be saved. Okay, so we can be absolutely clear that sanctified here does not mean saved in this context. So then, how do we understand the word sanctified in verse 14? Well, I'm going back to something we've said before, um, but it's, it's the crucial um, fact. The word in the Old Testament and New Testament, this word sanctified at its most basic means Set apart, if you can pull up the next one, James, please. Set apart from and set apart to on the basis of God's decision and action. That's another use and meaning of the word sanctified. You got that? Set apart from, ordinary, every day. Set apart to, uh, some particular Use or position or privilege on the basis of God's decision and action. So go to the Old Testament and you find in the Old Testament that places are sanctified. The tabernacle, the temple. It was only a tent, but God set it apart. You find tables, utensils set apart. You find days are sanctified. Why? By God's decision and action. Now, come into the New Testament. Next slide, James, if you've got it. Um, You come into the New Testament, John 17, verse uh, 19. And now we have the ministry of Jesus. And here's what Jesus says. Listen to it. For their sakes I sanctify myself. Okay? The word in the New Testament. It's the word that we have here in 1 Corinthians 7. What did Jesus mean? For their sakes I save myself. Well, if that's what he'd have done, he was saying he'd never have gone to the cross. No, he was saying for their sakes I set myself apart from this life, the life that I have now, that I live in the flesh, and I set myself apart to the cross by God's decision and action so that I might save my people. You see, they're sanctified in the second sense. And so this meaning, set apart from and set apart to, By God's decision and action. Let's bring that now into our text. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified, is set apart from others, and set apart too by God's decision and action. Does that sound sensible? 
Does that sound biblical? Does that sound like what we find somewhere else in scripture? Well, yes, it does. On the basis of God's salvation, worked in one party, God sets apart the unbelieving party, the household, to himself. What does that mean? Well, it means he bestows opportunity, he affords privilege, he grants blessing, he lays claim on the life of the unbelieving party. He will require accountability on behalf of the unbelieving party. He says to the unbelieving party, as he said to Abraham, you must keep my covenant. And so we are taken back immediately and we see that this ties in with the concept of covenant that is at the very heart of scripture. And whereby on the faith of on the basis of the faith of one person God sets apart from sets apart to himself by his decision his action the whole household that's what we have in Genesis chapter 12 um, and in particular in Genesis chapter 17 um, which we read. It's what Peter affirmed on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it's what Paul teaches here now in this passage. And it strengthened this understanding of sanctified is strengthened further by the preposition that Paul uses. I want to... Um, to read the verse again. You probably, hopefully you noticed this whenever I was reading the scriptures uh, this morning. But for the unbelieving husband is sanctified, King James says, by. NIV says, sanctified through. The original says, sanctified in. In the believing uh, uh, in the believer, in the believing wife. Uh, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified in the believing husband. And it's exactly the same um, truth as we have which in scripture which talks about in union with. Because of their union with. It's the same word as is used to describe us being in Christ. We are in union with Christ. And so everything in this verse is saying to us that Paul says the believer is not to initiate divorce because the unbeliever is within God's covenant circle that God established in Genesis, that God reaffirmed in Acts chapter 2. That underlies all of the New Testament. And to support his point, what does Paul do? Well, he speaks about the children. Look at how the verse continues. He speaks about the children of a mixed marriage. 
And he uses this as an illustration, but it shows us that he's thinking of the covenant. Otherwise, your children would be unclean or defiled. But as it is, they are holy or sanctified. It's the same word. It's now an adjective. Before, it was a verb. But it's the same word, group. And so... Uh, Paul is saying, if the covenant principle and practice established with Abraham and reaffirmed by Peter does not stand, that the entire household of the believer is set apart from and set apart to by God's decision and action, then your children are defiled. Your children are no different from the children whose parents go to the pagan temples and don't know a single thing about God, about the Bible, or about salvation. But look at what it says. Paul says, but as it is, they are holy. They're not like the children of the pagans who go to the temple, who've never heard about God or his salvation or have no knowledge of the scriptures. They are sanctified, your children, by God's decision and action in his covenant. And so Paul is saying, by that covenant principle, your unbelieving spouse is sanctified in God's sight. Set apart from, different to the pagan that goes to the temple. Yes, they're not saved like you, but they have a privileged position by God's decision and action. Now, do you see how Paul defeats, we bring the whole thing together at this point, because remember, he's not just, he's teaching them, yes, um, um, about why they should not divorce, but he's doing so against a background, and the background was that these ascetics are saying the believer is defiled by the unbeliever in a mixed marriage. And so the believer should divorce the unbeliever. And Paul says, in effect, absolute rubbish. Not at all. The opposite is in fact the case. The unbeliever is sanctified in the believer. Therefore, do not initiate divorce. Let the believer, husband, not divorce the unbelieving wife. Uh, let the believing wife not divorce an unbelieving husband. Now there is a little conditional clause you will see in the verse that we haven't touched on. I'm not going to go into this now this morning, just to, but just to mention it. We're coming to this tonight. If the unbelieving wife, verse 12, is willing to live with him. And if the unbelieving husband, verse 13, is willing to live with her. NIV, New King James, both translated as is willing. That is far, far too weak. It means is pleased is glad to dwell with him or heartily wants to live 
with the believer. And so um, Paul says all things being equal. Where you have that kind of attitude on the part of the unbeliever. The believer is not to initiate divorce in a mixed marriage. Because of this covenant principle and practice that has been from the day of Abraham. Now that begs the question, um, what if the unbeliever wants to divorce? What should the believer do then? Well, you'll have to come back tonight if you want the answer to that question. So let's close by making four applications this morning. First of all, we see here the goodness of God and the favour of God. How kind, how gracious he is in dealing not just with individuals, but dealing with households. Um, And you can make that a, a fifth application if you want to and go away and think about that. But let's see now the four particular applications that I want to make. First of all, we as believers must not use this passage to justify the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. And so I'm going to speak to you young people here this morning at this point. You must not say to your parents... Or come and say to our session at some point, uh, or to me as your minister, uh, I like Mary, or I like Peter. I believe I'm in love with them. I know that he or she is not a Christian. Nonetheless, I'm going to date them, and I am willing to marry them. And why should I not? Um, After all, God views the unbeliever in a mixed marriage as sanctified in the believing spouse. Well, that is a a totally wrong use of these verses. Uh, And um, the little cameo I have painted, young people, directly (coughs) contradicts the revealed will of God for the believer. We have seen already uh, in uh, the end of this chapter, in verse uh, 30, sorry, it was the end of chapter 6. No, was it? Where was it? Chapter, um, yes, it's the end of this chapter. It is verse 37, um, where Paul is addressing the widow, and um, uh, he says, um, uh, sorry, verse 39. Um, He says, the one who is contemplating marriage, and this is the female, this is in the day of the first century culture, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So scripture is absolutely clear. Marry outside of Christ, young person as a believer, And you're likely to regret it for many a long year. So young people, do not go against the word of God. Do not rest the word of God to your own damage and your own hurt. 
That's the first application. But then there's a second application I want to make here. Paul, like our Savior, keeps his emphasis on marriage, not divorce. Yes, also within a mixed marriage. He doesn't say to the believer in a mixed marriage, you should divorce. After all, you and your spouse don't have the most fundamental thing in life in common. You would be better on your own, where you wouldn't have daily battles and struggles to keep the faith with an unbelieving spouse. Both of those things may be the case. Daily struggles, daily battles, to keep the faith. And there could be a sense in some marriages between uh, a believer and an unbeliever that has been begun wrongly, that it would be much easier if they were on their own. But that's not the point. That's pragmatics, Paul would say. That's not working from principles. Paul's starting principle is, what God has joined together, let not man, in this case, the believer, put asunder. God called you to faith, believer, when you were already married as unbelievers. And you are to see his providence in that. You are to see his grace in that. You are to... Um, uh, remember and hold fast to this principle of the covenant. You're to make that the basis upon which you live and think and act and pray and live within the marriage. Uh, and so uh, that's what Paul uh, says here and teaches here. And of course, um, we come then thirdly to note that living within a mixed marriage is unlikely to be easy for the believer. There may well be daily struggles, daily battles, daily disappointments. And this is true whatever way the mixed marriage is, whether it's one that's covered in Scripture or one that's not covered in Scripture. You'll have the context that for the believer, Christ, his word, his will, his day, his church, they're the important things. And for the unbeliever, there would be other things that are important that matter. Friends or sport or hobbies or nights out or whatever. And there may well be many clashes. And at best, the unbelieving spouse will tolerate the faith of their believing spouse. And at worst, the unbelieving spouse may ridicule even attack the faith of their unbelieving, or sorry, of their believing spouse. So how can the believer survive within that setup? Is Paul not being harsh here? Can they survive? Well, yes, they can. And if Paul was dealing with the believers uh, and their struggles in a mixed marriage with the unbeliever, he would be bringing in the grace of God again and again. And he would say, in grace God called you, and by grace God will sustain you, and he will keep you, and he will enable you, and he will protect you, and he will strengthen you. 
and you will survive, not because you're strong-willed, not because you've learned uh, or you've developed a thick skin, but because of grace. The grace that comes. And that's what we saw at the very beginning of this, this whole book. Paul writes to these Corinthians, grace be to you. And so there's grace for the believer who finds themselves um, within a mixed marriage. And we need to keep affirming the believer within a mixed marriage and encouraging them in the light of God's grace and praying for the reality of God's grace for them day by day. But then finally we want to see this morning what an incentive the Lord gives to the Christian in a mixed marriage. To work hard at that marriage. To maintain it. To live for Christ within it. And what an encouragement to the believer to pray for the salvation of the spouse. What an encouragement to plead the promise of the covenant blessing. Not just upon the children but upon their unbelieving spouse. And say Lord you have set my unbelieving husband apart in your sight by your decision. By your action. You're the one who has saved me. Save him. And it was a believing husband with regard to his wife. You've saved me. Save her. And you see, uh, we have wonderful encouragement to, to think and pray along those lines. The day that the angel appeared to Cornelius and was sending him uh, or getting, um, asking him to send for Peter in Joppa. To tell him about salvation. The angel didn't say to him. You will be saved. He didn't say that. He said you. And your household. Will be saved. And. What an encouragement. And so. All of us here. This morning as we widen it out now. So that there's application to all of us in church. We have parents, we have siblings, we have children, we have wider family who are not yet saved. And what is Christ calling us to do this morning? Well, he's calling us to live for him and to serve him in and among the unbelieving members of our families first. That's where... Faith begins to display itself in the home amongst unbelieving members of family. Um, and doing that, recognizing that there is this principle that God has established. That because you are there in that family as a believer, you're there as a light in the darkness. You're there as a hope and to give hope and God has um, given the rest of your family privilege because you're there. Make the most of that. And pray earnestly that as God has had mercy upon you in Christ and saved you when you were dead in trespass and sin, how much more then would he be pleased to save those in your family who are unbelieving but now are sanctified set apart by his decision and action 
our response should be that of Paul. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the unbelievers in my family is that they may be saved. What a wonderful, wonderful couple of verses that Paul gives in this, and he speaks them into this context where there's wrong teaching and wrong ideas and where people would want to put apart what has been joined together in the sight of God. And Paul says, don't do it for all of these reasons. Well, let's take time